And good morning, Harvest. We are continuing in our series in Titus. So this is a letter Paul uh, wrote to, uh, as he'll identify, a spiritual son, a true son in the common faith. And we are this morning in chapter 1, 4 through 9, verses 4 through 9. We've got the text on the screen. Uh, we can follow along in your Bibles. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, reads this way. This is the very word of God. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable and a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict him. It's the word of God for the people of God. And the people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. <coughs> Father, thank you so much for our time gathered together in worship, the community of the believers. I pray that we might just rejoice in your love for us this morning and for your provision, your watchful provision merciful provision over uh, your bride, the church, in even its visible display as a local church. And so thank you for this text specifically as it guides us towards how to find godly leaders to lead uh, your church in a way that would honor you and bring um, life and joy and peace and good pasture for your people. And uh, Father, I pray that as I would speak, uh, you would speak. I pray that I might decrease. I must because you, Lord Jesus, must increase. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning's text, as you heard, deals with uh, church governance, church oversight, uh, how the church is meant to be um, led, uh, run, according to God's word. Remember, God's word's inerrant, it's good, it's authoritative. I'm so thankful God has given us guidelines. We may have seen or experienced different kinds of church leadership, maybe different interpretations or applications of this passage and the others in the New Testament that deal with uh, church leadership. I, I find great consistency in those passages. I don't claim to be all-knowing, but they look pretty consistent to me, even though there's been uh, various strands or brands uh, over the course of church history. We've had a, the uh, ecclesiastical model of um, kind of regional oversight from a regional bishop or overseer as such, and I realize there may be times in church history that, where that was even necessary and uh, recognize that. I, I don't think that's biblically prescribed. I think the elders as such, are supposed to be examples among the flock. They're to live among a people and know a people and smell like the sheep, so to say. The, the people in a body ought to be able to know the character of a certain leader up close and personal. There's been uh, um, congregational-led uh, uh, or ruled uh, bodies and in, uh, in, in still are in certain uh, denominations. And, uh, and, and generally, I stay away from that word rule. I think that, that word can, can be confusing or, or less than helpful. I think there's a role and a responsibility that a congregation plays and that its leaders play. Uh, but oftentimes with a congregational rule, as it's generalized, um, uh, there, there's kind of one elder, a pastor elder, that's overseeing uh, a particular body. And, uh, and I think that that is uh, not what I see consistently in Scripture, but I also think it's, it's a bit dangerous. It's, I don't think it's wise. We'll talk about this in, in a moment, but um, I think in God's loving provision of a plurality of elders, for the local body, it guards against the limitations of one man. Amen? Well, I'll go ahead and say now. Um, one man left to himself to lead with uh, all the power is going to end up screwing that up. All right? There's only one leader of the church. That's Jesus. He won't screw it up. And the under-shepherds in a local body are meant to be the ones that are his representatives in community, uh, hearing from the Holy Spirit together, needing more than one of us to take uh, into account the blind spots that any of us may have. Um, you know, uh, all authority corrupts. Uh, man, man can't handle it. I, I can't handle it. If I had all power and authority here, I'm, I'm, I'd screw that. I'd have already screwed that up. All right. Let me just go ahead and say that out loud. Uh, it's pumping 70 watts into a 40 watt bulb. It's going to bust. Okay. That that we're not meant to uh, be the sole proprietor leaders uh, of the church. I, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And so I think we need to be careful with that. And be thankful for both the scriptural model, but just the wisdom of God behind it. How much more wisdom is there in a community of men, mature men as described in this text, to lead a body? And how, ma how many more examples is that among the people of, of following Christ who can be followed as they follow Christ, as, as Paul urges the Corinthians and the Thessalonians? 
And, uh, and again, uh, 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 to cover our basis and protect against each other's soapboxes or blind spots or whatever it may be, um, and, uh, and certainly to prevent against a man uh, becoming uh, large in his own eyes, which I think would be the downfall of any church. And so uh, I think there's wisdom there. Uh, I think the scriptures give a consistent picture, I'm going to show you this, of uh, a pl- every time it's, you see it explicitly in the text, it's a plurality of mature men, presbyters, elders, overseers, um, same word, pastors, in a local body. And uh, we'll see it here in Titus. We'll see God, uh, Paul writing to Titus in God's word for him to appoint elders, plural, in every town in Crete. There were bands of believers that had gathered, uh, they had come to Christ by the evangelistic work of Paul and others, and, um, and, and there were pockets of disciples, Christ followers. There was no real organization. There was no real uh, leadership of that. And so uh, lest they be left as sheep without a shepherd, Paul is telling Timothy, you, or Titus, sorry, you stay here and you need to uh, uh, pick up on the work. That's what he's going to say in verse 5. Put what remained into order. There remains, as I leave, there remains pockets of believers. We need to organize and bring order to this. And that order is going to be with the appointment of a plurality of godly men in each town to lead that body. That's similar to um, Acts uh, chapter 20. Paul's talking to the church in Ephesus, and he meets with the Ephesian elders. Plural, there's a plural group of godly men who have a heart for the people in Ephesus that have been appointed, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit to lead that, and have been recognized by leaders such as Paul, to lead that church. In Acts 23, Paul and Barnabas, after their second missionary journey, appoint elders, plural, to lead at the church in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Just three more examples. And it's by the appointment of Paul and Barnabas. The consistent and really only New Testament pattern that I see for leadership in the church is a plurality of men that God has given us guidelines for precisely what they must be. How they, it's, it's not up to our best guess of this guy seems like a good leader. This guy leads great in business. This guy's been really successful over here. Let's put him in the church. God takes it away from being us in our human wisdom to discern who would be a good leader in his church. Uh, or, and certainly it's far from a popularity contest, right? It's not, man, I just love this guy. Let's get him to lead. Or he's my friend. He'll probably look out for me. No, God's given us guidelines and said above reproach in accordance to this. And ultimately appointed by mature believers who have a grid, a biblical grid to discern a man's character as in accordance with these qualifications. And I think it naturally follows that the congregation has a role and responsibility in that. Not, not to, uh, you guys are called, we're called, I'm called, Hebrews 13, 17, to submit to the leadership of the elders. If there's any man being presented in an elder process and you're a member of this body who you're going, I could not submit to that guy. You'd have to say, why? What about him is that? Is it your problem or is it his uh, inadequacy? And if it's the latter, then there's a responsibility there to make it known in love to the mature men, the elders that are leading, hopefully, faithfully that body, why this guy's not qualified. And that, in doing, protects the entire body. So I think with love and gentleness and wisdom and prudence, we are meant to ultimately seek to be led by men that fit the bill, according to these qualifications, that will ultimately be appointed by elders. The way we do it here at Harvest, trying to apply God's word is the, uh, the congregation gives us nominations. We want to know who among you is leading in these ways. We read the qualifications out of 1 Tim and Titus. Then the elders take several months, about four months, of vetting the elder candidates. And, uh, and that vetting, we feel like, is a biblical responsibility. It's, what, it's what's given to the uh, serving elders to do on behalf of the protection of the body. These people that are going to uh, have their souls cared for by the elders need to have a serious vetting that an entire congregation can't do, and the only model in Scripture we have is elders doing that. And then once that's done, coming back to the body and saying, these are the men we vetted and believe would be able to serve well, and if anyone has an issue, please let us know. We give you a month after standing them up, and then, and then we vote, uh, and, and the congregation affirms that which the elders have vetted, and we hope that is protecting the process of getting the right men in leadership. Why is that so important? It's true of any organization, but it is so true in the church the health of the church is inherently tied to the health of our leadership. So we can't have the wrong men serving as elders and still be healthy as a church. Let me give you a little tale, fable, uh, story. That, uh, that is, it is, it's, it's a, it, a guy named Jothan gives this story in your Bible. This is Judges 9, 
maybe, maybe jot that down. It's maybe somewhere you want to spend a little time meditating on this this afternoon or evening or even tomorrow morning. But this is a, this is a great leadership tale. Uh, it actually revolves around the character Abimelech. Any of y'all heard that name? Old Testament. He was the judge after Gideon. Gideon served well. It's a whole other story. I've got to be careful not to chase too many rabbits here. But at the end of Gideon's life, Gideon had 70 sons. And so Gideon as judge, who was going to rule after him? Who's, who, where was his power going to be uh, authenticated among? And so this son named Abimelech, he uh, realized that uh, there was kind of an opportunity here for him to grab hold of some leadership. And so he went to his mother's relatives. So think about that. He went to those, you know, cousins, nieces, nephews, uncles, and he went to his, his people, his family. And said, hey, 70 guys ruling, that's going to be a little, little crazy. Seems like to me we had one with dad ruling and now maybe it'd be one with, you know, somebody like me ruling. So I'm paraphrasing Judges 9 here, but basically he says, what do y'all think? And this is one of the first examples we get in the Old Testament of the community taking a vote. And the mother's relatives of Abimelech, which is a messed up way to do it, uh, thought, you know, we kind of like our nephew, we kind of like our cousin here. Uh, he'd probably take pretty good care of us in the community of Israel. Let's elect Abimelech. And so they hold this ungodly election. They elect uh, Abimelech to be their uh, judge, the next judge of Israel. And the first act he does is to kill his 70 brothers. See, you can see what kind of leader he's going to be. Um, very insecure. And, uh, it, but one of them escapes, the youngest son, Jotham. And Jotham uh, gets up at Mount Gerizim and pleads before the people. And he says to them, uh, he tells them a story. He says, the trees were looking for a tree to, to uh, hold sway over them, to lead them. And they went to the olive tree, and they said, will you lead us? Will you hold sway over us? And the olive tree said, I can't. <clears throat> I'm too busy producing the olive that's used in the, uh, in the, uh, in, in the process of service, uh, uh, religious service. So I've got this, uh, the, the olive oil I produce is used for consecration of priests and men. So I can't, I can't possibly leave my duty and service to go lead among you or, lead, or hold sway over you, lead over you. So they went to the uh, fig tree. They said, fig tree, will you hold sway over us? And the fig tree said, I can't do it. I'm producing the fruit that men eat that sustains them, that they enjoy. So they said, okay, how about you, vine? Vine says, I can't. I produce the wine that makes their hearts happy, pleases man and God. And they said, oh, man, who's going to rule over us? And so they went to the bramble. Y'all know what a bramble is? It's like a thorn bush, all right? It, it just produces thorns and thistles. It's just a, I don't want to call it a worthless little bush, but it kind of is. And, um, and it doesn't even produce any shade, nothing. And they said, will you hold sway over us? And the bramble said, I'll do it. And if it's that you really think I'm the one to lead, this will go well. And here's the story. But if you're doing this just thinking that I'm going to take care of you, then this will produce fire and judgment. Okay, there's a parable within the story that if you elect wicked leadership according to your selfish desires, the result will be judgment. And so followed Abimelech's reign of destruction in Israel. Uh, we, when we're looking for elders, are looking for olives, figs, vines. One of the ways you know that they're qualified to be an elder is they're so busy serving among the body and their lives are producing fruit that others are enjoying. Does that make sense? One of the ways you know somebody's not fit to be a leader is they're a bramble. They're thorny, they're not producing fruit, uh, and they're self-seeking in their desires. And they're oftentimes, like Abimelech, looking for the opportunity to lead like it's some kind of a notch on their resume or in their belt uh, our public perception might favor them or they might do better in their business or whatever it is, nothing to do with God's qualifications for the leadership of God's people. You with me? What's the result? Destruction and fire. Those are strong words, Old Testament on you, right? But this is important. God does not leave it to our imagination. He doesn't leave it to the opinions of man to what makes a good leader in the house of God. He gives us qualifications. The first thing I'll say all I see in scripture is the plurality of elders leading in a local body. 
There's examples for the people to know and love and follow and to be known by. They ought to be known. And, um, and it's men. I, I've said that multiple times. I haven't really explained why. But uh, in the character of God and in the nature of God, he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have different roles in the salvation and sanctification process. We are made in God's own image, man, male and female. And there is, uh, they are equal in essence, equal in uh, image-bearing of God, uh, equal in dignity. They are unique in role, just like God. We, made in his image, are unique in role. Uh, men have certain roles and responsibilities. Women have certain. In the home and in the church, there's some clarity with those roles. Men are to lead in certain ways in the home and in the church. One way a man is to lead in the church is in this particular office of elder. We know that if for no other reason, one, explicitly, it's only referred to as men in the text, but secondly, that one of the responsibilities is the elders must know sound doctrine, be able to teach it, and they must actually discharge the duties of their ministry. They must teach the body sound doctrine. Able to teach, First Timothy said, goes into greater detail in Titus on what that means. Ladies, First Timothy 2 says in uh, verses uh, 11 and following that the women are not to teach or have spiritual authority over the men in the church. And then you might go, well, that's because in that day, good gracious, women were second-class citizens. Well, the very next verse, verse 13, says because God created Adam first and then Eve. That has nothing to do with their culture. That has to do with creation. That has to do with order. And in the wisdom of God, it's not better than, worse than. It's not varsity, JV. It's a difference in role. And the men have a specific role to teach sound doctrine and have spiritual authority over women in the body, or over men and women, over the body. I, I could maybe give you some of the whys according to human wisdom, but that's an area I trust God in. I think he knows what he's doing. Men are called to lead in this area. Women call her to be submitted in this area. In the garden, we had problems with that. Adam's called to lead. Eve's called to submit. And what happens? Adam goes passive. Eve takes control. We have the fall of man. Uh, we're still doing it today. Sometimes we don't like the order of God. Sometimes we don't like, sometimes we think, sometimes we just think that doesn't make any sense. And we want to claim our rights or, you know, whatever. Look, guys, we've been given the very word of God. I don't always understand it, but I know it's true, it's good, it's loving, it's true. And so my job is to bend my life and my will and my wants and desires according to the truth of God's word. And the office of elder is an office that we're to look for godly men, okay? Okay, so uh, let's look at these qualifications of, a, uh, of the men, the olives, the figs, and the vines. Who are we looking for here? First of all, Titus calls, uh, sorry, Paul calls Titus his true child in the common faith. I just love the discipleship tone that Paul has led Titus to faith. He considers him a son in the faith. Isn't that great? A spiritual son. They don't share natural bloodlines, but they share in the blood of Christ. We're the family of God. We're going to get to chapter two where the older men are meant to pour into the younger men and the older women, the younger women. And we're going to see Great wisdom of God, how that's supposed to look. But we're not afraid to have spiritual fathers in the faith. Paul's not afraid to call Tim, uh, Titus his true child in the common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put remain in order. It's good and of God that we might have order in the local body of Christ. And that order would be tethered to leadership. Here it is. If anyone is above reproach, let's start there. These, the bar is incredibly high for being an elder. Uh, trust me, I wrestle with this. My wife can tell you. I'm this morning going, gosh, it's hard to preach this because I feel like I clearly fall short of being above reproach in every one of these areas. Let me try to explain a few things without compromising the standard. First of all, above reproach doesn't mean perfect. How do we know that? We'd have no elders, nor would we be able to possibly ever appoint any elders. And God's desire is for us to appoint elders. So above reproach does mean something. We don't want to go, ah, so forget it. No. It means that, uh, that there is a standard that is being modeled, that is on display, not perfectly, but clearly, but in mature fashion in all these different areas. We're going to talk about family leadership, we're going to talk about marital faithfulness, and we're going to talk about character qualities. And an elder, in, in terms of being above reproach, will be perfect in none of them, but ought to be a pace setter, ought to be a guy that we can all look at and know that, boy, he's intentional in his pursuit of faithfulness in every one of these years, and we see a maturity in those qualifications in his life. There's not doubt, there's not confusion. There's not like, really? I don't think of him like that. 
That, if, if there's that kind of a perception in really anyone about one of these guys, that's not above reproach. The, the word really means not able to make charge against this guy. Like if you could make a charge, I think his character is not the, like this. He, he's, he's arrogant. Says you can't be here. If that's a charge that sticks and others go, yeah, I kind of see that too. That's not above reproach in a guy's life. Does that make sense? Okay, and so above reproach is a, uh, a faithful pursuit, a quick repentance of when their shortcomings are falling short, which there will be, uh, but a standard of maturity in each one of these areas. And that standard of maturity ought to be privately known by, those who, by himself and those who know him best, and really publicly known and affirmed by a body. Everybody good? Okay, so above reproach in kind of these areas. The husband of one wife. That literally means in Greek a one-woman man. So, um, and why that's important is I don't think it literally, I don't think it literally means you can only, um, that you have to be a husband. I don't think that's the idea, that you can't be an elder unless you're married. Again, Paul is uh, serving uh, uh, in this role as overseer. Uh, Titus will do the same. Uh, We we have examples of, of those serving as elders, pastors, overseers that are not married. So I don't think the emphasis is the husband or even necessarily that you were married once to one woman, depending on circumstances, I'll explain. The, the, the essence of a one-woman man is a man that is committed and faithful to love one woman. Like, like he's not a wanderer uh, with his love. He's not uh, a deceiver in this area. He's not promiscuous in this area. He is maritally faithful. There's marital fidelity. That's true of him and it's known about him. And that we would look at his marriage, if indeed he's married, or we would even look at him as a single man who is single-minded. Not just running around uh, pursuing um, uh, various women or having, you know, uh, sexual escapades or like, like that's the farthest thing from a one woman man is this guy is committed, 1 Corinthians 7, is a single man to the bridegroom of Christ. He's so focused on that. Should God give him a woman to love? He's committed to her and loving her well. He's not, uh, yeah, he's maritally faithful. He's honest in that pursuit and it's of integrity. He loves his wife well. And that's known of him. Let me give a couple qualifications I, or, or a couple uh, explanations here. I'm sure that these are, you're wondering these things. And we've had to uh, kind of parse through them among our elder board, and they're not easy. But can a single man be elder? We, we, think a single, we don't think this disqualifies. Uh, we think a guy can embody the idea of um, sexual fidelity, uh, embody that even the way some of the examples we have in Scripture who are elders, who are single men can. So we don't think you have to be married to... Uh, uh, have this kind of character quality about you. you we could see that in the way you uh, handle a, a courting or a dating relationship uh, that you may have had, or just again, in your single-mindedness to ministry where you are. As long as there's not uh, infidelity in this area, as long as there's not uh, 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 sketchiness in this area, that that's what that, that's what that would mean there. Um, what about a, a man who, is, uh, who his wife has passed away, that has died? We see Romans 7 is saying he, he's, he's uh, free from that relationship and, and, and in every application of that freedom, we don't think that he's disqualified because he's not presently married if he was faithful as a husband. Well, what about divorce? This is probably the stickiest one, the grayest area of the bunch. And there, there, we, we've done a lot of prayer and reading. This was, again, I love it. I love not being the older elder. I love not being, well, I gotta make a decision on this one. Got a lot of mentors that disagree on this, so we gently believe that a, a true application of the scripture and a good application of the scripture and a loving application of the scripture, uh, as far as it makes sense to us, that we know divorce is, is not the heart of God. We know it grieves the heart of God, period, in all circumstances. We believe the word gives permission for divorce. Uh, it's permissible in two areas, in two areas only, where there is marital unfaithfulness, so adultery. And so Jesus would say, you're not to be divorced, Matthew 5 and 19. With the exception of marital unfaithfulness, in other words, there's an exception clause. Says you can't be divorced and remarried. With the exception of, if there's adultery, it doesn't mean you must be divorced. It means it's biblically permissible if you're the victim in that relationship of adultery. I've never met a relationship, by the way. I've, I've never done any marriage counseling in a relationship where it, it hasn't taken two people to struggle in, in loving each other well before we get to an adultery. Okay, so let me just say, this is not just a free-for-all, but, if, but there is something in Scripture. There's a biblical, permiss, biblically permissible divorce. We recognize that in us, the words of Jesus. So we believe he's saying. Um, we also see in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul saying, if, if an unbeliever abandons you, unbelieving spouse abandons you, you're free. 
So we would then say, well, can that man, can he get remarried? This is not as explicit, except that exception clause that Jesus talks about, we think it applies to both. If it's a biblically permissible divorce, then I would be of good conscience uh, for a man to be remarried. There are some that wouldn't. I recognize that, I understand it. But as a church, we, don't, we feel like there is a such thing as a permissible, biblically permissible remarriage. And if a guy has been a model, again, go back to it, it's case by case. If we look at his life and say he has been a, a man who has loved one woman well, like he has been a one-woman man as long as any of us have known him, certainly in Christ, and it was true of him in his marriage, which for whatever reason uh, crumbled, it, for whatever reason being only one of these two for him to have any chance of being qualified to be an elder, but in one of these two reasons, but he was always known even within that, even in the wreckage that divorce always brings, his reputation is somehow above reproach because he's been such a one-woman man. If that's true, and by the way, that's very exceptional, but if that's true of a man, we would not see him necessarily disqualified from being an elder. He could still be a one-woman man and have shown a track record that and be mature in that and be perceived as that. By the way, if the public perception of a man, even if we think it's true of him, but public perception is that it's not true, even then I don't think it would be loving for a body and it would be potentially divisive for him to be an elder. So uh, it's something we have to be extremely careful of because uh, uh, even the perception would, would leak into the idea of above reproach. Does that make sense? Okay, that's, the, that's probably the toughest one, okay, followed closely by this one, uh, that his children must be believers. That's what it says here, and not, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Timothy says the children must be submissive. That word believer is believer, or you might have a footnote, faithful, uh, and it's left up to the contextual rendering to determine which it says. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that Titus is saying they must be regenerate believers, because it would be odd to me if Timothy didn't say that, like Timothy's calling anyone to appoint an elder in any less standard. Like if that was clearly the standard, I think we'd get it in both places. Uh, most scholarship says, uh, it's not a term of lowest common denominator in terms of quality, but they both are, these, these texts are incredibly parallel, almost to a word. And so we think the idea here is the children must be faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to a godly dad, because you're not going to be an elder unless you are setting a standard of Christ's likeness in your home that you are one that teaches the word first in your home, that you love your wife well, you love your kids, you're raising them in training and instruction of the Lord, your heart is for the Lord, you're pursuing Christ. The kids get to see that of full integrity. And the idea is they're not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. If they're just rebels without a cause, and by the way, I, I'm not one to point a finger at you as a parent. I think that by the grace and mercy of God, I fail as a parent all the time. It's only the grace and mercy of God that might draw my children to himself. I'm doing everything I can as a flawed example to point them to the goodness of Christ. Only God can save them. If I could save them, save them, I would have by now. I can't, but I'm pointing them to Jesus. I'm living as a Christ follower. I hope they see that. And I think by normative pattern, God uses our godly example to bring our children to saving faith in Christ. It's normative. It's, it's, the, it's the greatest gift they have, that godly parent, that dad that loves mom and loves God and lives rightly and justly and holy before them. But it doesn't always happen that way. It doesn't always but even still, if they honor dad and mom, if they are um, respectful of, uh, of your spiritual beliefs and, your, and the, go the gospel which is taught before them, if they're not in open rebellion, open to the charge of insubordination and debauchery, even then, I think, you could be qualified to be an elder. But, and again, I'm not one to judge or point fingers, should any of my children, Lord forbid, or anyone's, be subject to the charge Justly so. Debauchery, insubordination, they're unfaithful, they're not submissive, they're not believers, then I, would not, then I would not need to be an elder. If that happens one day, I would step down in that day from pastoring and eldering this church. And some might say, that, well, that's not your fault, you can't control it. Well, I probably got a lot of fault in there, first of all, I can assure you of that. But even so, that's not up for debate. God's been clear in his standard. We apply the standard lovingly. It could cause division in our body from outsiders. Whatever the reason, God protects his body for his purposes, for his glory, and for our good. Does that make sense? And so we follow the standard. That's what God gives us. As the best we can apply that rightly, we want to do it. Then he gets into ones that are, I think, a little clearer. He must uh, not be arrogant. Boy, I tell you, to me, Whew, uh, there's, no, there's no more greater juxtaposition or oxymoron than the arrogant Christian. 
And let me, that just reminds me of something I forgot to say earlier. These, these, don't think of these as not applying to you because we're just talking about elders in the church and you may be uh, out here as a lady or a young man who's thinking, ah, I can, I can take a nap on this one. First Timothy 3 says, aspire to this is a noble calling. Every, we hope every young believer, Colossians 1, we're trying to present you mature in Christ. The goal of every believer, man and woman, is to embody these character qualities of Christ's likeness. We're trying to, we want to all be growing towards maturity. So if the shoe fits, where? There's cause for repentance in all of this and for learning. But arrogance, uh, an arrogant Christian, my goodness, the idea of arrogance. How are you a Christ follower and at the same time arrogant? Think with me. Jesus, God, incarnated in flesh as a babe in a manger to be misunderstood and mistreated and abused and spat upon and crucified, dead and buried. Like there, if I were to ask you me one quality about Jesus, probably most of you would either say holy or humble. That's what first comes to mind, the humility of Christ. And we're supposed to be his ambassadors, his representatives. The world ought to look at Christians and just say, man, there's nothing else I can tell you. They may not be smart. They may not be good looking. They may not be successful, but boy, are they humble. Because to understand the gospel is humbling its very core. That I'm a rebel, a sinner, who God had to send the second person of the Trinity to take the punishment of death that I might be able to be in right fellowship with him now in eternity is humbling. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get there in and of my own self-righteousness. I fall short of the standard of God. So he did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Does that sound arrogant? I boast only in Christ. So if we have a man, I don't care how great he is or how successful he is, if there's even a twinge of arrogance, then he has no business being an elder an under-shepherd of Christ, one representing Jesus himself among the body. Um, uh, Paul says the Gentiles lord authority over people because they're fools. We, we don't do that in the church. If there's one thing I love about our elders, and when I love gathering them, it, it, it sharpens me, is they are a, it, you walk into a room full of a group of humble men. They know their needs, they know their weakness, they know their sinfulness, um, and they're honest. They're not trying to impress you or me or anyone else. And they love and savor the gospel. And they love Jesus. And they're not ashamed of that. They boast in him and not of themselves. And I'm deeply thankful for that. Arrogant. Immediately discued if there's arrogance. Quick-tempered. Um, it's a hard one for me. Uh, Quick-tempered, uh, I'm, I'm one of those guys. I, I, I think it's inherited in my human DNA and my familial DNA. The blood rises to my head sometimes. I get upset with things. Um, and, uh, and I have to be careful. If I act out of the flesh, uh, I'll be quick-tempered. I can be labeled as quick-tempered. And it's happened before. Uh, but I gotta be careful. I gotta know that, I gotta confess that, I gotta repent of that, and I've gotta be prayed up. I've gotta be around guys who'll speak the truth and love to me. And I've got to be spirit-filled, spirit-controlled, not controlled by my flesh, which would otherwise have a tendency in me to be quick-tempered. But quick-tempered is not a character quality of an elder in the church. It can't be. Because if you're quick-tempered, it's going to follow that you'll be potentially arrogant and violent, two that are surrounding it. By the way, it says also a drunkard. First Timothy says you can't be addicted to much wine. Drunkenness and arrogance and quick-temperedness, First uh, Timothy uses the word quarrelsome, contentions, all go together. The idea of an elder is he's meant to be gentle. He's meant to be one who can listen more than he needs to speak. He's meant to be one in a meeting, and I see this over there, that can share his opinion and others disagree, and he find the wisdom in their disagreement more than he wants to advocate for his own opinion. He's got to hold his thoughts loosely, offer them up with integrity because the group needs uh, his thoughts and wisdom, and yet hold his place in his voice and his thoughts loosely because he's humble, he's gentle, he's not quick-tempered, he's not violent, he's not contentious, he's not uh, quarrelsome. And it says here he can't be greedy for gain. The idea there is simply uh, worldly. It has nothing to do with rich or poor. It has to do with the motives behind it. If he loves money, if money's an idol, if, uh, if he's given over to worldly pursuits versus uh, captivated by kingdom pursuits, and trying to steward his money towards that end. Not, not just to be, not to check a religious box, but because he's captivated by kingdom, the kingdom of God and the coming of Christ. And so he stewards what he has accordingly. That would be not greedy for gain. 
We're meant to be zealous for the glory of God, not greedy for gain. Now, that's what not to be. Here's what to be. But hospitable, to be hospitable, the idea of opening not just your home, I think it starts in your home, but opening your home, your life, your possessions, your time for the value and love and benefit of others. It's trying to take who you are, everything you've got, that which is most precious to you, and utilizing it to let someone else know that they are loved by God in heaven. That's why we open our homes. That's why we invite them in. We say, I want you to know that uh, I love you and I love you because there's a God that's loved you. And you may not know the love of God, but I hope you'll experience here in this home tonight. There's relational intimacy built because of our hospitality. An elder, you could be an introvert or an extrovert, still be an elder, still be hospitable, still use what God's given you to love on others and to shepherd them and to show them God's love. A lover of good, that would be the opposite of a lover of evil. There's evil in this world. The world's crooked. It's... Uh, Satan's the prince of this world. You ought to be able to look at this world and its corruption and its crookedness and grieve that. You grieve what grieves the heart of God. Um, uh, you grieve the, the, even in the American Christian culture, the lackadaisical nature of it, the lukewarm nature of it, the worldly nature of it. Uh, you, you hate those things that are evil. You hate false doctrine that leads people astray. You love that which is good. You love justice, right? You love... Uh, uh, you love loving the unloved. Uh, you love it when you see uh, that which pleases God unfolding among his people. You love good, authentic community. You love worshiping God and the worship of God because he's worthy of worship. So you love what's good and you hate what's evil. Self-control, this is a big one. And again, they're all big ones. Um, but self-control, the idea that you're not uh, merely controlled by your flesh, that you're under the control of the Holy Spirit. I've mentioned that I love, to, I love to coach my sons. I love to coach the boys in the community. It's a great joy of mine. Um, uh, we're in the middle of some baseball and some football. If you guys came to a baseball game, and by the way, I see tons of y'all all the time at games, so this could really happen. Hopefully this, what I'm about to say, won't actually happen. But if you came to a game, I see y'all love high-fiving, checking on things. It's so fun to see everybody in the community, out of the park. If you see me coaching, and there's a close call at the plate, and it goes in favor of the other team, and I sprint out there, and I turn my hat on backwards, and I get nose to nose with that umpire, and I kick a little dirt on him, and I get tossed out of the stadium, and I make a scene. How are you going to feel coming to church Sunday morning? <laughs> You're going to think, this guy is a clown. I, I don't want to hear what he says about the things of God, that, that I would have lost that privilege to speak truth into your life because I have no self-control, right? doesn't mean that I'm not ever angry at a call. But we hope there's godly perspective. We hope there's not merely worldly gain. We hope there's ministry happening. There's eternity in view. And there's the reputation of Christ at stake. And so because of those things, there's a maturity in self-control that's displayed in that moment or any other moment. That these men must be known by their self-control. Furthermore, upright and holy. I think the idea is Holy is set aside, set apart from ungodliness for the purposes of God. Uh, there ought to be a real pursuit of holiness that's evident in the life of a believer. If I were to look around this room, and I'm seeing a lot of you guys that I know, and if I were to call you by name, hey, uh, Bob, would you mind coming up? Cindy, would you mind coming forward and just giving us a brief testimony of the Lord's faithfulness in your life? And if you thought, don't want, you know, I can't do that. Or you got up here and your eyes were on the ground, you weren't willing to make eye contact because you're afraid of who you might see and what they might know about your life. Then, then there's a lack of integrity between how you live and the testimony you're giving about who Christ is. Does that make sense? If there's not an uprightness, a pursuit of it, a holiness that people recognize about you is true. That, again, that you're not perfect. You're stumbling forward. But boy, do you love Jesus and pursue him passionately. And everybody knows that. So you're unashamed to testify for Jesus Christ. You haven't lost your witness because you've been DQ'd because of a lack of holiness in your life. And then it says disciplined. Uh, there's no way to have these other ones apart from discipline. Discipline's a practice. Uh, the Holy Spirit's going to give you uh, the strength and what you need. But dis what disciplines are in your life to help you become more like the Lord? From, uh, from being here, wanting to be filled with the truth of God's word. From spending time with the Lord every day. From disciplining um, uh, your sleep patterns, uh, your eating habits, your uh, intentionality with uh, making time for your kids to train them up in the Lord. Intentionality with pursuit of growth. Every one of these things can't just be an aspiration. It takes discipline to produce fruit. And so you're not going to have a guy like this without great discipline in his life. And it says in verse 9, he must hold firm 
to the trustworthy word is taught, there's a lot here, but he believes, first of all, that the word is trustworthy. He doesn't believe there's any higher standard, certainly not in himself. He's not impressed with his own wisdom, he's impressed with God's wisdom. He holds firm to it as taught. Watch this. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He's got a hold to the word, part and parcel, because he's got to teach the word. And if he doesn't believe it himself, exemplify what it says, he has no business teaching it. And to be an elder, he must. So he's got to know God's word, love God's word, follow God's word, and be able to teach it. Sound doctrine, the word right here is to rightly divide. He's got to be able to tell you what's true of God's word. He's got to be able to spot things that are just a little off. This is hard. This is hard in my own life to see things and say, okay, the job of a pastor elder, part part of it is help people make sense of human philosophies. Help them make sense of what they're seeing and reading. Um, and, and what's information is being disseminated to them in social media, in small group discussion, in, in counseling or therapy. Like you gotta be able to take what's given and it's gotta be able to be processed through the Bible and distilled and truth's gotta come out. And who, who, who distills that? The mature men with the discerning view from the word of God have gotta be able to help you know what's true and what's not true. They gotta be able to help you split right from wrong. That's, that's part of the job. And the only way they do that is they are men. It doesn't say anything in here about having a seminary degree. It's from a discipline of studying God's word that's producing an uprightness and a humility and all these character qualities in their life that they're practicing faithfulness because they're compelled by the gospel because they're so in love with their savior. And over time, there's a maturity. They can spot false doctrine because they know so well what is true in God's word. Does this make sense? Must be true of an elder. And they must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, this is a hard, I don't like confrontation, but they've got to be able to speak the truth in love. In a, in a genuine, sincere, loving manner, they've got to be able to call out what is wrong and, and work towards bringing forth to the surface what is true. In, the, in, in a congregation, uh, our role is to hear. Uh, it's to be, uh, these guys aren't just dictators throwing out harsh judgments on things where they're here to help guide discussions towards truth and towards clarity. There's multiple of them to speak into things that are really hard or hairy or gray areas of our lives, and we're to be submitted. So when you got something going on in your life, you don't know what to make of it, don't know what to do with it. It's a trouble spot, it's a problem, it's a hard one. And you go to the elders. You got a group of men, spirit-led, humble, not seeking their own interest, wanting the Lord's will to prevail in your life, loving and shepherding you, and helping you discern what God's will says about that situation in your life. That's, that's meant to be a blessing. Amen? That's meant to be a blessing. I just tell you, we have an elder meeting once a month um, where the, about the first 30 minutes, hour, hour, whatever we need is given to anyone in our body who needs to come forward and receive prayer, who needs to speak with us about a matter in his or her life. You can always do this privately, getting together with an elder, an elder and his wife. But we give that time and folks come in. And uh, if we have to, we'll split into two or three groups and we pray over folks. And we hear and try to help them lovingly apply God's word in their life. The elders are a, meant to be a fruitful vine, an olive tree, a fig tree that doesn't desire to lord over you, wants to serve you. And you can trust them because of their character in Christ and their maturity in the faith that is visibly obvious to everyone that knows them. That, my friends, is the wisdom of God. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? A plurality of godly. Now, it's great so far as you have men qualified according to this standard. Okay, I'm only gonna do two more things this morning. One is we are uh, installing some men this morning. If those men would come forward, they've been through the process. They've been nominated. They've been vetted by our elders. They've stood before our body. Uh, we've received feedback, and uh, with great joy, we will introduce five new elders and one repeat or older. I don't know how to say that. Sorry, Steve. Uh, one elder who's serving his second term with us, but if those men will come forward, Steve Tucker, who will be serving his second term as an elder, elder terms are three years of service, and uh, it's not easy to serve a second term. If you serve one, you would understand it, there's great sacrifice being given from these men, great amounts of time. Uh, they're not being paid to do this. There are some that are on staff being paid for their job, but in, in terms of all that goes into eldering, um, it, is a, it is a sacrificial labor of love and their reward is in heaven. So Steve Tucker, uh, Wendell Thompson, Jason Ellis, Chuck Hannaford, Pace McKee, and Rick Lundgren. And Rick is not able to be here this morning. The other five are, and uh, 
I would just tell you we praise God that uh, there's men like this in our body. Not perfect men. Not a one of them would ever argue their own case, trust me. But we believe that according to the scriptures, they are modeling maturity as examples in our flock of these things. And they're willing, they're willing to give themselves in a Christ-like, unconditional, sacrificial way to help you guys grow towards maturity and help me and help us grow towards maturity in the faith. And so uh, uh, we're grateful, men, for you and grateful for the willingness uh, of your time, talent, and treasure. Thankful for your example. And what we wanna do is uh, pray over you now. Uh, we've got a little gift we give these guys. It's really meant to be a symbol and a reminder to them. It's a sword. Seth, go ahead and show us that sword. You can unsheath it, just don't use it. And uh, so the sword is meant to be a sign of their protecting the flock. They're to lead, feed, and protect. Um, these are uh, elders, all, all men on stage are presently serving, these ones in the front are uh, being newly installed again, Steve Tucker, for a second term. Let's pray over them uh, this morning and uh, give thanks to God for them. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, just, just put a hand out towards the stage and towards these men. Father, we are under uh, your watchful eye and we're grateful. Lord, you're the good shepherd. We, we can do no better and we wouldn't try. We want to point towards you in the way we love each other and these folks in our body at harvest. God, I pray that you'd help us in our weakness, in our uh, moments of uh, self selfishness or uh, misplaced affection or wrong motive or whatever it may be, that you'd immediately work in us to convict, to quicken, to cleanse. Lord, that you'd help us as a, uh, as a board of men, as a body of men to hold one another accountable, uh, to love one another well, to speak the truth in love in each other's lives, even when it's tough. And Lord, I pray for your favor to rest upon these men, for your protection on them, on their families, that you would give them the strength and the discernment to elder well for a season. Lord, we know how much it will take out of them and from them. And so will you be the one that fills them up each day to the point of overflowing, that their ministry may be an overflow of their intimacy with you. God, we thank you that men like this uh, can be found among us, uh, that they can be examples, that they can uh, give us a picture of your love and your faithfulness. Lord, continue to sanctify them. Not a one of them has arrived yet, and we're excited about the next season of their own lives. Continue to grow them, conform them into the image of Jesus. Lord, let them be faithful, and may you be glorified in their service to Harvest Church. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, man. Hey, let's praise God for these guys. Last thing I want to tell you, and I want to end with this, and we're going to go to communion, is uh, if you're out there, man or woman, and you're out there saying, my goodness, that was a harrowing list, you probably either say, I'm thankful for the fruit in my life that God is producing in me the character of Christ, which would happen a little faster, <coughs> and I need to be more submitted, more surrendered, and it's just a good reminder, and it's kind of a convicting encouragement. Or you're going, my goodness, that's just not true of me at all. I'm empty, I'm broken, I'm angry. I don't have a trust relationship with God. There's brokenness in the closest relationships around me. Uh, I'm like a thorny bramble. And if the truth were told, if we had to take a public perception of me by those who know me closest, that's probably how I would be perceived. I just, I just wanna say what's most important to be heard this morning, that what you need, if that's you, is not a, a tweak in your behavior. It's not that you just need to buckle down and be a little more disciplined in this area and this and this. What you need is Jesus. And I promise you this, there's not a man that was just on the stage there's not a man or a woman among you that there's godly fruit producing character in that's doing it in and of their own strength. There's not. They're not trying harder. They're not better at it. They're people who have died to themselves. And everything that you are now, they once were. And they died. And Christ resurrected them. It's called new birth, 
regeneration. They're a new creation. And God is forming in them a completely different character, uh, 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 an antithetical character to the one they once had. And their affections have changed and their desires are changing and their life is changing and their character is changing and they're going in a different direction than they once ran. And they see the direction they used to go and they go, oh my gosh, that was foolish on a pathway to death and destruction. I experienced the harm that it caused and God has rescued me from the domain of darkness and placed me in the kingdom of his beloved son and he set before me the beauty of the gospel and I can run no other race but the one towards him and I'm humbly obedient because I'm compelled by his love and he's changing me. And if that's not your story, then what you need is Jesus. It's the gospel. It's to receive by grace, none of us earned it, through faith in the provision of the perfect lamb and his finished work on the cross. It's to receive the shed blood of Christ as an atonement for your sin and to receive it and to surrender your life to him who gave it for your salvation. You receive his righteousness. He took your curse. You receive him. You're saved. Salvation. It's the only way this kind of man or woman is spruce. That's the only way that a bramble becomes an olive tree or a fig tree or a vine. I want to pray this morning, lead us into communion. If your desire is to know God and be known by him, the means is Jesus. We've come from a lot of different pathways, but there's or on ramps, but there's only one highway. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You gotta come to God through Jesus and through the blood of Christ. And that is to admit your guilt and that there's no way in and of yourself you can get where you wanna go in a right relationship with God filled with the Holy Spirit and the peace of God which passes understanding and the joy of your salvation be yours. There's no way apart from dying and being raised again in Christ. Father, if there's anyone here today that looks at their own life and pronounces judgment on themselves that says, Bramble, I'm a thorny bush and I'm frustrated and I'm never satisfied by the things of this world which I've pursued as idols. May they be quickened to the truth of the beauty and the peace of Christ. Jesus said in his own words, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come and find rest in me, rest for your soul. God, for those who are weary of themselves and of this world, let them come quickly to the table this morning to receive by grace through faith Jesus. We have a demonstration of his body broken and his blood shed for us on these representative tables. Let them come, let them take these elements as, a, as they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Wash them in his blood. Wash us afresh with the grace of the gospel. Lord, have your way with our lives, that we might be useful and usable for your glory and your kingdom. That's our greatest desire. So it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.